Amen. Open the Word of God to Matthew's Gospel this morning. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 28. 28, and we'll read verses 19 through 20. Again, I want to thank Pastor Mike for letting me be here today. I didn't know he was actually in, um, in, in, the, in the med, so, uh, boy, he is having a good time. And um, I don't know if, if I can compete with, with being in Ephesus, but uh, I appreciate Mark. Uh, aren't you guys glad for Mark? Mark, Mark is a work in progress, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and uh, every time I come here, I kind of chisel a little bit more away, and uh, and he is uh, he he's getting there. He's getting there. All right. Our Matthew's Gospel, chapter twenty-eight, verse nineteen through twenty. The Scripture says this. We all know these verses very very well. It says, "Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things." Everybody say all things. All things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you all the way, even to the end of the world. Amen. This is what we call the Great Commission. Uh, we call it the Great Commission because it's not the Great Suggestion. God, amen. That's a heavy rabbi. Write that down. God, God is not suggesting that we do that. This is, this is a command to us. Uh, and in, how many understand, we were just singing this beautiful song here about the Lord's kingdom coming and declaring Him to be king. But how many know that a king... Uh, doesn't ask its subjects for their opinion. Thank you for your enthusiasm, ladies and gentlemen. You see, everybody wants a Savior, but very few people want a Lord. Jesus is both Lord and Savior, or He's neither. We pray for God's kingdom to come, but I would like to ask the question, are we really ready for the kingdom to come? Are we really ready to have a king come and just begin to tell us how we're going to live our life, what we're going to do, what not we're going to do, how we're going to think, how we shouldn't think, what we should say, and what we shouldn't say? See, in America, we have this infection called freedom. This is going over really well. Can you feel the love in the room this morning? Can you feel the love in the room? We are a free people, but however, freedom in itself has become to mean, I think, something differently, different than what God originally intended for freedom to be. And if we're not careful, we'll interpret the Bible through our cultural lens as opposed to interpreting the Bible through the manner from which it was spoken originally. At the end of the day, what's important is not what I believe the Bible to say, but what God meant for it to say. And what we have here, we have, you know, in, in, the, in the body of Christ, the, the very, very unfortunate reality is this that we have between, depending on what stats you read, we have between 30 and 40,000 different Christian denominations. Did you know that? Google it. Between between 30 and 40,000 different Christian denominations. Why in the world would the people reading one book following the same Savior being led by the same Holy Ghost, hearing from the same God and Sovereign, have 40,000 differences to the point that it causes us to segment ourselves, separate ourselves, and give the world a confused idea of what this kingdom is all about. You see, we believe in freedom, but freedom is not, in fact, the, the ability to do whatever I want to do or believe whatever I want to believe. Freedom is the fact or freedom is actually the ability to be who I was created to be. Freedom is the freedom I have now to be that expression of God in the earth that that I'm able to do now the things that God created me to do 
not just freedom to throw off restraint and do whatever I believe is the best thing. The Bible says, and we just read it for you, Jesus said that to make disciples, can anybody say the word disciple? The disciple is not a dirty word. It doesn't cause a lot of pain, but it can be, but it can be kind of a messy business. Because the Lord did not tell us here to go into all the world and to make converts out of people. He told us to make disciples out of people. And making a disciple out of someone is very different than making a convert. And I've been here in the past. You've heard me say things like this. But he says here, okay, here's how you're going to do this. You're going to make disciples out of people. Now, how many know that Jesus is the way Jesus made disciples? Allowed 12 men to turn the world upside down, as the Bible says. Acts chapter 19, these, Paul had a Bible school with 12 guys in it. And Paul and these 12 guys, the Bible says, in two years, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. How do you do that? If, if, if 12 guys have turned the world upside down, then why does a billion Christians still have trouble thumping a city? Can somebody talk to me this morning? Because at the end of the day, we have to have something to measure what we're doing with our life. You know, if the Lord tells me to go and plant a church in, in, uh, in, in Foothills, um, California, then it, I can then, if I do that, I can measure what I've done. Have I, have I been obedient? Is there a church there? Yes. Okay, I was obedient to do what God told me to do. I have to have something to measure my success by or my obedience by. The same thing is true here. Jesus tells us to make disciples, and then the way we determine whether or not we've been successful is looking and seeing this measuring stick. Have I actually made disciples out of people? It's one thing to make a convert. It's a totally different thing to make a disciple. And we've been trying, and, we, and, and, and we've created Bible schools, and praise God for Bible schools. They're good. We see one in the Scripture. That's a good thing to have. But at the end of the day, there seems to be an effectiveness level that these guys had that we have not seen. These guys were affected to the point you could have all of Asia hear the word of the Lord in two years. And get this, Paul did not even have a website. No website. He didn't have any CDs. He didn't have his own TV show. He wasn't on shortwave or longwave radio. He didn't have any books in circulation at this time. I mean, Paul, yet at the same time, these guys were able to touch and to change the world. Now, why, why is that so? We, we believe it to be true because the book tells us that. But then when we translate that and bring it down to our day, we have, uh, we have taken on the idea that we can almost be like, we can do it better. We can do it faster. You cannot microwave the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. You can't just pop it in the microwave, push how much time you want, hit start, and expect when it gets done to be done well. This thing takes time. It takes investment. Now, I'm married to an Italian woman. And I tell you what, when you marry an Italian woman, you know there's a God in heaven. I'm telling you. Because, you know, she, she, that's not in the notes. I don't see it. It's not anywhere in here. No, that's not there. Shall I write it in for next time? Okay. Okay, what does that say? All right. What I'm saying is when, you know, uh, about microwaving, you know, whenever, I, whenever we were dating, I wanted to impress her because she just cooked everything. I mean, she, you know, she didn't buy 
sauce in a jar, that was like anathema. That was, you didn't do that. So she had to make her own sauce, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and the woman makes her own pasta. I mean, when you, when, you, when you eat her pasta, I mean, your mama better not be anywhere around you because you're about to slap her. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, my, my mama came over to eat one time and, uh, and I was eating that pasta. And I looked at my mama and I said, Mama, you better go on out to the car. Because I could feel that he was so good you want to slap your mama. So at any rate, I said, Mama, it's time for you to go home. I'm getting down to the bottom here. I'm feeling it. My point, what is, my, what is your point? Okay, my point is, it takes time. It takes time and effort to really make something that's really good. Now, me, I'm the microwave guy. And whenever we were dating, I really wanted to impress her so I invited her to have the, to have a meal that I was going to cook. So, okay, how, do I, how am I going to do this? So what I did was I went to the store and I bought um, like uh, five or six of those small little uh, microwavable lasagnas. Okay? <laughs> it's true. It's true. I'm bearing my soul this day this morning. Pray for me. All right, so... So, and I, and I, and I went and... To, uh, she, was, she was at work, and so I was uh, making this. So I took a big pan, I opened up all these five, and I stuck them all in the pan. And then I, I found some of her homemade sauce, and I actually put her homemade sauce over the top of it. And then I put the cheese on, and I baked it. So when I served it to her, she could actually taste her own homemade sauce, and she thought that I had actually made the lasagna myself. Score! I mean, hook! I, I broke down at the end. My conscience was just so, so overworking me. I, I told her, but okay. But the point is, you, we, some things in the in the things of, of God, we can't fast. We can't fast food this. We can't microwave this. Jesus is intending that we would affect people's lives to the point that we change the world. Now, if we're going to really do this, then we have to analyze how we are doing it. Another stat. According to the George Barner Group, which is a Christian um, survey group, maybe you've heard that before they do all the statistics and things. According to them, they said 73% of all Christian kids who go to university lose their faith before they leave, they get out. 73% of our kids who go to university will lose their faith before they get out in four years. So how effective are we with our own families? Now, I'm, 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 I'm peeling this banana here. I'm trying to show you here. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to just talk straight. Can I talk straight to you this morning? Because we, we want to change the world, and yet in changing the world, we have to understand that we have to also control our own culture within the church and understand that the Lord is going to be Lord over all or He can't be Lord of any. And in our American idea of freedom, we have the idea that restraint, freedom is meaning that there are no restraints. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not freedom. That is anarchy. There must be boundaries to that which we call freedom. Otherwise, we don't have any freedoms. Laws are in place to actually protect our freedoms. Are they not? We put laws in place to protect our freedoms. However, many times when the law is mentioned, I appreciate Mark's words in the beginning here, when, when law is mentioned many times, it's perceived as a negative thing and something to be resisted. No. 
we must understand that law is, in fact, freedom. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, The law is good for those who use it lawfully. You see, a car is a good thing. It can get me to work. It can get me to see my family. It can take me to school. It can bring blessing into my life. But if I drive the car on the sidewalk, that which was a blessing to me can also end me up in jail. It can become a curse. It can kill people. You have to use things correctly. Now, Jesus says this here. Now, I'm going to go back to this verse of Scripture. In making the disciple, in other words, let's put it this way, in changing the world, because that's what's going to happen. We're going to make disciples. The disciples are going to change the world. And that's what he did. He made 12 disciples and they turned the world upside down. If you go back to that verse of Scripture, it says this. You're going to make, go into all the world and, and, and um, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. Did you hear that? Teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. In other words, what seems to be lacking today, and I never thought in my ministry life I would be standing in a pulpit around the country defending Jesus. But Jesus said, you want to make disciples, what you've got to make sure you do is you teach them the things that I taught you. And I say that because maybe you're aware of this and maybe you're not, But the words of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, are under attack from the pulpits of America today. They are actually telling us now, the this is just about four weeks ago, a very well-known minister was on television. He said this. He said, the words of Jesus are no longer valid. They're like an expired credit card. They're really, now that's, that's sad enough and heretical. But the even sadder part is the congregation is standing up and shouting amen and rejoicing at what he is saying. Now, you're shocked and you're, you're, you're sucking in air, which is great. And I know that because you're a well-taught congregation. But ladies and gentlemen, there is an epidemic in America today that is pulling itself away from Jesus and the words that he spoke. Several years ago, I was in, I was in Spain and I was on my way to teach at a Bible school. And, uh, and the Bible school director was with me and... Um, and I had been given a lot of latitude, freedom to teach whatever I wanted to teach. And he said, so what are you teaching this morning at school? And I said, I'm teaching from the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to use the Lord's Prayer kind of as an outline uh, about prosperity and protection and, and so forth. And, uh, and he said, oof, I really wish you wouldn't do that. And I said, I beg your pardon? He said, I really wish you wouldn't uh, teach from that. And I said, why not? He said, well, because that's an Old Testament prayer and those, and that doesn't, and those don't work anymore. And I said, okay, wow. Um, now, I, this guy had actually attended Ramah. And so I said, I said, you know what? I said, I think what you ought to do, so that's a really, really interesting point you're making there. So probably what we should do, as soon as we get to the Bible school, maybe you need to get on the phone and call Ramah and tell them that Brother Hagin's entire ministry is based on an Old Testament confession in Mark 11, 23, and 24, and that doesn't work anymore. And he paused. And he said, you know, that's a good point. Um, Go ahead and teach what you want to teach. I thought, thank you very much. I think I will. But people aren't thinking this stuff through. They're not thinking this stuff through. We had some friends of ours. We were, they were in a, uh, a meeting. There was a moderator there, and they were asking questions. One of our friends stood up and said, and said, Jesus said, if you don't forgive your enemy their trespasses, the Lord will not forgive you your trespasses. And he asked the moderator to comment on that. Before the moderator could even comment, somebody who's written a lot of books stood up and said, when are you people ever going to learn you cannot get doctrine out of the teachings of Jesus? Now, this, this started years ago. It was just kind of sprinkling, just very, very light. And you could hear that, and you knew that if this thing continues, it's going to manifest itself in something very, very bad. 
And now that's what we have happening in our world today. We have people telling us today that not only are the words of Jesus are, uh, are no longer effective, but also all the things, anything that, that happened before his resurrection, just forget about it. I've heard even ministers saying, you know what, just rip the Ten Commandments off your wall. They have no, if you try to keep the Ten Commandments, you're just in legalism. You know, we need in the body of Christ, we need to understand there's a difference between legalism and law. There's a big difference between being legalistic and being lawish. I had somebody come up to me one time and I was saying, well, we, I want you to wear a tie or whatever I was saying. And they said, no, brother, that's, you're, that's, you don't put me under the law. I guarantee you, you can look throughout the entire Old Testament and you will not find any law in there about wearing a tie. <laughs> but anything that we perceive as being binding us up, we throw into this category of law. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that today because I want you to understand that truly God has given us some absolutes. How many know that the world is looking for some definite answers right now? And God has given us absolutes that you can go to the bank on and you can know that what God has said is still active today. If you're listening to anybody who's telling you not to listen to the words of Jesus, you are listening to a heretic. And and I I look at it this way. If you tell me not to listen to Jesus' words, I'm telling you I'm not listening to your words. You, You have lost all credibility in the body of Christ and you need to keep your mouth shut. You see, the world is in the world. How many would agree? The world is in trouble right now. If you look around, the things are not stable. This word of ours is stable. It is solid. It is a foundation. You can build a superstructure on this thing. And indeed, God is called the church. But this world of ours is not stable. We have now. We're redefining words. We're redefining. You know, we're redefining words. A, 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 ter- a domestic terrorist is now just somebody who's, who's, got a, who's had a bad day eating too much sugar and now his terrorist acts are just domestic, or not domestic, but uh, workplace violence. We redefine actually what m- the definition of marriage and this supposed redefinition makes it right now. No, there is truth and there is lie. There is right and there is wrong. There is black and there is white. I mean, thank you very much. We need to make sure that we understand this, that God has given us absolutes. Our financial condition in this, in this country is incredible. Do you know if you took a dollar and set a, set a dollar on its edge and put another dollar beside it, and you got to just set them beside each other and made a line of the dollars, if we, did, if we started right here and we went as far as we could go with the debt that we have in America, do you know how far we would reach? We would go around the world 45.6 times or stack them starting right here you would go to the moon and back five times if we taxed everybody at 100 percent, in other words every dollar you made you sent to the government it still would not fix the problem we don't make enough money in america to fix it taxation is not the problem the answer only god can be the answer to our our situations but God's answer to us is a lifestyle lived within parameters. And these parameters provide us great safety and great comfort. It's only when we remove the moral absolutes that we find ourselves drifting. Moral absolutes. We're going to talk a little bit about the Ten Commandments today. The Ten Commandments. Very, very simple thing, the Ten Commandments. But you'd be surprised at how many people actually have a problem with that. 
the point I'm listening once again to a very well-known person, he tells you to rip them down off your walls. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason why, and I'll be very clear about this, the reason why the Ten Commandments are under attack around our country, in our schools, in our government, the reason why they won't, they're having them take them down in front of state capitals, the reason why the Ten Commandments are under attack in our world is because they're under attack from the pulpits. Because the men and women of God are attacking the Word of God from the pulpits, it is manifesting itself in our nation. And until we, until we get enough backbone to stand up and say, you know what, I don't care what situations, situational ethics says. I don't care what the country is saying. What I believe is what God said, and I'm going to hold to that. And Jesus' words are just as valid today as they were the day he spoke them. And when he said, Mark 11, 23 and 24, it still works today. And whenever he said, if you don't forgive your enemy their trespasses, the Lord will not forgive you of yours. I still believe that. But what happens many times is we get this new fandangled, actually it's an old fandangled. What if it's old? Is it fandangled anymore? It's a, uh, anybody know, I can't, even, I can't even tell you what fandangled means. Anybody, can, can anybody define fandangled? Okay, at any rate, Google it. Or, <laughs> fandangled. We get this new fandangled uh, a doctrine or belief, which is really just old stuff repackaged, and then we take the Bible and then we force it through this new fandangled idea. There's a wonderful teaching out now. It's often to an extreme called grace. I think you guys have heard about this before. I was at this one church and this, um, this pastor told me, he said, he said, uh, he, he said, here, give me this. He said, take this book. He gave me this book. It was about grace. And, uh, and he said, I have been teaching on grace for an entire year. I said, oh, praise the Lord, brother. Praise the Lord. And he said, he said, and this book here has been great. It's really set me free. And it set a lot of pastors in, in town free. And I said, really? How so? And he said, well, now, because of this, 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 this freedom, this liberty, this book is teaching, he said, now uh, there's a lot of pastors in town who've come out as being homosexual. And I said, okay, you know, maybe, maybe this is not a good book. And he said, what are you going to teach tomorrow at church? And I said, Grace. And so I got up there and I taught about grace. But I taught about grace, not from the word charis, which is the Greek word for it, but from the, from the word chen in Hebrew. You know the word grace is mentioned as many times in the Old Testament as in the, in the New? When you believe that grace is a New Testament concept, you don't understand grace. If you believe faith is a New Testament concept, you don't understand faith. Have you ever read chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 before? How many New Testament, New Testament people are in that, in that chapter? Zero. There's nothing that we have within the New that did not already exist in the Old the wonderful thing about Hebrew is this, is that before it was the written language it is today, it was hieroglyphics before that. And as hieroglyphics, it's an amazing thing. And hieroglyphics, it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, it's like a comic strip in a way with no words. You kind of look and the pictures kind of tell you what it is. For example, the word zod in Hebrew is, a, is an enemy, zod. And the picture of a zod, the, word, the, the, the hieroglyphic is someone that has, it's a, it's a weapon in someone's head, for example. It's a pictograph. It tells you. Beautifully, we say the name Yahweh here. Well, the name Yahweh in the pictograph is this. The word, the, the first letter is actually a hand. It looks like this, an open hand. The second letter is someone with his hands up trying to get your attention. The next picture, next picture in the, in the word is a nail. And the last picture is a person trying to get your attention. When you have two people getting your attention in a, in a word, it means revelation. You have a hand, a nail, revelation. The name Yahweh is the revelation of the nail-pierced hand. 
Everything in it reveals something. The word grace is exactly the same thing. The word grace is actually two pictures. It's two letters. It's a picture of life with a fence around it. Grace. And if you understand grace outside of the original word for grace, you don't understand grace at all. Grace is life with a fence built around it. In other words, life exists and thrives well when it is within parameters. You know, uh, I have, this might be a stupid question, but you ever been to Disney World, Disneyland before? Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, you can, you know if you, when you're driving into the parking lot, guess what? There aren't any rides or amusements in the parking lot. But you see a big fence. And inside that fence is everything wonderful and fun in life. And fattening and calorific and everything else as well. Everything that's really cool is inside the fence. And this is the way it is with the kingdom of God. As long as we live inside the fence, that's where all the cool stuff is. God has built a fence and said inside this fence is every good and cool thing that you could possibly want. Let me tell you quickly the story as we lead up to the Ten Commandments. Let me move kind of quickly through this. The story of the, of the, of the exodus of the, of the children of Israel, I believe we all will know, is a story of freedom, isn't it? Where God was going to set his people free. And he was going to set them free out of the bondage that Pharaoh had over them. Pharaoh was a guy that had a hard Heart. And sometimes we have a tendency of, of, of kind of judging Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart. But let me just tell you this. I want to see, ask yourself the question because my desire today is to, to give you an idea, to give you a, a thought about living your life free and how to live free and not to be afraid of boundaries that God puts in our life. If anybody in this room is a parent, you know you have boundaries on your children because you love them. This colleague of mine, he was in his house and he his, he had a little boy, a three-year-old boy, and he had one of those little electric cars he could drive around. And he was in his, in his study, window was up, and he heard this crunching sound. And they had, they had gravel on their driveway. They hadn't finished it yet. And he looked up, and his little four, three-year-old boy was on his car going down the driveway to a main highway. So he said, so I jumped up and I ran, caught up with him, and I said, whoa, buddy. What, what do you think you're doing? He said, I'm going to go get some donuts, as the little boy said. I'm going to get some donuts. <laughs> Have wheels, we'll travel. I, I'm going to get some donuts. I mean, literally, at the end of his driveway, he, it was a merge, you had merged onto the uh, to main highway. And he said, he said uh, you know what? I tell you what, why don't we go back, get in Dad's car, and we'll go get some donuts together. He, and the little boy said, I got this. Can you imagine that? I got this. So, a good father he is, you know what he did? He built a fence. Is it because he's a mean, cruel dad wanting to really bum out his little kid? No, he's trying to protect his child, isn't he? He's trying to give his, children, his child the room to drive his little car, but at the same time protect him from getting run over by somebody wanting to get donuts quicker than what he did. Pharaoh's heart kept getting hard. Why? Because Pharaoh wanted to do what Pharaoh wanted to do. So in our life, we have to make sure that we, we examine our heart. Say, I, you know, is, is my heart soft towards what God is wanting to do or is it hardened towards what God wants to do? And you can see whether or not you have a Pharaoh rising in your heart because typically the idea of a Pharaoh is this, that Pharaoh does not want to be told what to do. 
If there's an epidemic in our country today, and that is that I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And many times it even comes to the word of God. But we have to realize, as I said before, we have to have a Savior and a Lord, not one or the other, both at the same time. And so we have to make sure that we have this pliability, this softness in our heart and not be too quick to judge Pharaoh because many people themselves have this hardness where they say, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do in the way that I want to do it. The Puritans had this saying, and they said, the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. In other words, there are some people when the Spirit of God moves on them, they just melt before God and say, Father, I see you're so right. Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, do it, God. Whether I understand it or not, I see it in your word, Lord. I will obey what you say, God. Have your way and have your will in me. There are others when the Spirit of God moves upon them, they stiffen their back and they say, no, this is a plan for my life. This is what I want to do. I had a different plan for my life growing up. I did not grow up planning to be a missionary slash minister slash pastor, whatever I am. I, my, 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 my goal was to be a millionaire. That millionaire was my job. That's, that was it. Just millionaire, that's what I was going to be. I had an evolution in my life as to what I wanted to be. I, at first, I wanted to be a garbage man. That was my main thing. As a little boy, I wanted to be a garbage man because of the big trucks. They got to drive a big truck and throw stuff. That's what I wanted to do. I could, be a, I could throw things and I could drive a big truck. And that's what I wanted to do. Then as I grew up a little bit, I said, you know what? I don't think I want to do that. I think that I want to be an astronaut. Nine years old, I wanted to be an astronaut. So, so that's, what I, that's what I decided to do. I wanted to be an astronaut. And then from that, it kept growing. How this is, you keep growing and growing. And then you wanted to be an actor, whatever that is. And, uh, and then you didn't know whether you were an actor or an actress because everybody uses just the name actor. You know, we do that a lot, don't we? We're starting to change the vocabulary to create a new reality. As I said before, we start redefining words. We start redefining what things say or how things look and we start redefining words we start saying okay now we don't have a host and a hostess we just have hosts we don't have actors and actresses we just have actors we don't have a steward and a stewardess we have flight attendants we don't have waiters and waitresses we have servers is an intentional manipulation of language to gender neutralize a society so that we no longer think in the distinct uniqueness of male and female we have a woman who's elected as governor, and we call her governor. That's not, a, that's not correct. She's a, she's a governess. Do you know that? You can't call a woman a governor. That's linguistically incorrect. When we lived in the U.K., you have, if you go, went to a store and you, and you wanted to talk to the, quote, manager, if it was a, a woman came out, they would say, the manageress is here. We have deliberately manipulated language so that we can get a result in society that we want. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the church to take back language and begin to speak the word of God as God intended for it to be spoken. Because words have power. And words do change situations and do change circumstances as you and I both know all too well. So lastly, so what happens here, and the thing is that we're the frog in the pot. We're boiling up. We don't know it. We don't realize it. It's not intentional on our part. We're completely innocent to this because we just don't know any different. But at the end of the day, and the truth be told, Jesus' power is being taken away from him systematically by the ministers of our country because his words are no longer applicable. They're like a no good credit card. We're being told that the Ten Commandments are no longer actually relative any longer. We have some friends of ours who live up in the 
a northern state. I won't mention, mention it, but they live up in, a, in the northern state. And they called us the other day and they said, we were sitting there listening to the, the pastor preach. And he said, Jesus made this statement when he said that narrow is the way that leads to salvation, but broad is the way that leads to, to, to death. And he said, now when you read Jesus' words, because of the fact that Jesus was a, you know, an Old Testament guy, now because of grace, we have to take Jesus' words and change them. He said, the Bible needs to read this way now. Narrow is the way that leads to destruction and broad is the way that leads to salvation. If you believe that you have the ability, the authority to take the words of Jesus and manipulate them, there is no more fear of God. We have lost the fear of God. We've lost the fear of of what God's word says because we no longer believe in the parameters that he actually gave us originally. Go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. We're going to read this here. And so my, my intention today is to, is to bring you to a place where we begin to understand that God's desire for us is truth. God's desire for us is, is freedom. God's desire for us is happiness and wholeness. But he, he gave us parameters to live our life in so that we would be able to experience all those things. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. The scripture says this, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. In Hebrew, he says this. He says, Lo ichie Elohim acharim al You're not going to have any other gods before my face. You're not going to get anything else that's going to get in the way of our viewing each other. But he starts off by saying this, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. In other words, God is saying all this protection here is all about me we need to understand that the bible has a direction and that direction is that god directs all creation towards himself god moves everything towards him because it's all for his glory it's all for his edification it's all for the expansion of his kingdom because we tend to read scriptures and look at them like this you it's all about you Draw a big circle and put your picture right in the middle of it. It's all about you. No, it's about him and his glory and his kingdom and his power and his might and his dominion. And he's working things out in you to bring about glory for his name and the expansion of his kingdom. It's all about God. And we just get to be along for the ride. And as his children, we, we enjoy the blessing and the protection of the Lord, and we enjoy everything he is doing. It's all about him. We see here, it says, that I brought you out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. These people were set free out of Egypt, and now he was about to tell them how to live free. You can be set free, but just because you're set free does not mean that you're going to live free. You know, the Bible tells us this in Galatians chapter 5. It says, now that you're born of the Spirit, live by the Spirit. You know, you can be born of the Spirit and not actually walk out the Spirit. If you're not careful, what happens, the Bible says this. It says, you can hear the Word of God, and if you hear it and don't do it, then you begin to deceive yourself. You begin to deceive yourself in believing that you're doing what you're supposed to do, or you're living the life you're supposed to live that is pleasing and pleasant unto the Lord. But at the end of the day, we're not doing that. We're living in self-imposed deception in some way. God tells us that we're set free now that we can actually begin to live 
free. The problem in Egypt was slavery. And the answer was God. The problem is always slavery. And the answer is always God. For a biblically illiterate society, we don't use that word slavery very much anymore. We use the word addiction. I'm addicted to um, alcohol. No, you're a slave to the bottle. Well, I'm, I'm addicted to uh, my, my self-image. No, you are, you, you, are, you are in bondage to yourself. Whatever it is, we, we have to understand that, that, God, that we go through a cycle of getting ourselves into slavery, slavery or bondage into some, some fashion, and God is always the answer for every situation. This is not an old story. This is a timeless story. This is not just something that has been, but it's something that always is because it continues to repeat itself. As a pastor for over 20 some odd years, I can tell you when people come into my office, very rarely do I have people come in and say to me, Pastor, I just got this, oh, I I just can't figure out what gift of the Spirit to flow in. Or I feel so born again, I just don't know what to do with myself. They don't come in and say, oh gosh, I'm just so full of the joy of the Lord, I feel strength from all heart. It's, no, the counseling is typically this. It, it's, it's, you know what? I, I, got this, I'm a, I got this problem. I'm bound up by this. I'm bound up by that. I'm not free here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It all, the cycle is the same. We go from freedom when we get a hold of God. Say, yes, God, I see what you want me to do. And you begin to do those things. Listen, understand this. We are not made righteous by anything we do. We're only made righteous by the blood of Jesus and what he's done for us. However, you will have fruit in your life. You know, I had this one minister come to me. After, I, I taught two weeks on this. And I had this one minister come to me and said, Are you telling me you believe the Ten Commandments are freedom? And I said, Yes. Did it, does it make any sense that God did this? The children of Israel are in bondage for 400 years. And God says, Okay, I'm going to deliver them out of bondage, bring them into the desert, and put them under more bondage. No. He gets them out of Egypt. Now they're finally free, and now they have to learn how to live and walk out this newfound freedom, and God gives them parameters on how to live in this newfound freedom. You know, part of our problem is this. We tend to read the Ten Commandments from the aspect of the recipient and not the giver. You see, we have studied most of our lives, most people through seminarian theological studies, we say people like John Calvin, Martin Luther. They're too new for him. But most of the, a lot of the theological things are put up, are put up with these guys in, in modern day uh, evangelicalism. But with these guys, both of these guys were attorneys before they got born again. And so they have a tendency of communicating this stuff like an attorney would. How many of you know going in, sitting down with the lawyer and having him tell you some things is very different, feels very different, has a different feel about it than sitting down and talking to your dad. And that's what we have happening here. If you read the the Ten Commandments, the law of God, from the aspect of a rebellious teenager who wants to do what they want to do, how they want to do it, you're going to completely misunderstand what God's trying to get across here. But if you look at it from the standpoint of a father who says, okay, kids, come on, come on, family meeting. Anybody ever have a family meeting 
I've had many family meetings in my life. Okay, kids, everybody gather in the living room, family meeting. We're going on a trip tomorrow, and this is what we want to do. Everybody's going to go to the bathroom before we get in the car. Okay? This is for the betterment of everybody. <laughs> okay? All right. And so we go through the rules of the trip. Why? So we can get from point A to point B happy. And that's what the father does. He says, okay, kids. Okay, everybody, come on, come on, come on. And he gets them all around the mountain and says, okay, guys, listen. You've had a rough 400 years. This is dad talking to you. I don't want you to go through bondage and pain anymore. And out here, there are all kinds of things that are waiting to destroy you. I haven't told you much about this person called the devil. But there's an enemy of your soul that all he wants to do is take you back to Egypt. Did anybody want to go there? No, Dad. Okay, great. This is what I'm going to do, kids. I'm going to show you how we can live together and how we can get from the bondage into the promise and keep that enemy away from us, okay? Okay, Here, here's, the, here's the deal. We're all going to get up and go to the bathroom before we, before we go. I'm going to make sure, I'm going to pack everybody a lunch, okay? I'm going to pack you a lunch. It's called quail and man, all right? I'm going to pack you a lunch, and here's the deal. You're going to get it. Don't try to get it on the day we leave because I'm, kitchen's closed. Kitchen's closed. Dad's going to make your meal for you. You know what I'm talking about? If you look at the, at the Ten Commandments from the perspective of a father who is really concerned about the condition of his kids, they're going to go on a family trip, and he says, there's some things that are going to try to kill you, destroy you, and take you down, but Dad's going to give you some family rules and get us from where we're at to where we need to be. When we look at the Word of God from the perspective of the giver as opposed to our rebellious receiver, it changes the entire perspective of how we view what God is actually trying to get to us. If we understand it in that way, it, becomes, it comes across in an extremely different manner. If we disconnect the law from the lawgiver, then it becomes abstract. It becomes too, maybe it doesn't become abstract, it becomes too concrete. It, it loses the heart of the person who gave it. Because if all it is just a bunch of rules, do's and don'ts, then we do tend to harden our heart towards that and find ourselves being a pharaoh in our own life. As opposed to saying, Father, let, let, let your son melt the snow in my heart and, let, and let's just do whatever it is that you want to do. Because you know what? Guys, the, road, the, people, the man who wrote the, the being who wrote the Ten Commandments is smarter than you. He's smarter than me. And, he's, and this, this one minister who said, you really think the Ten Commandments are actually freedom? And I said, yeah. I think it's freedom only having one God as having 300 million like the Hindus do and having to bow down every time you walk around. You're bowing down all the time. And, 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 and this one likes meat and this one likes bread and that one likes marshmallows or whatever it is they, they, they eat over there. Yes, it is freedom to only have one God. It is freedom not to have to build idols to these inanimate objects and build idols all the time out of wood or, or silver or whatever. You say, Pastor, this, this is so crazy. There's no way we'd be building idols today. Really? Really? God said, I don't want you to make, you're not going to have any idols, no graven images of anything. I'm not going to share my affection 
with anything. Remember the story in Egypt, what they had? They had gods everywhere. And God said, you have been really messed up. And we're going to write write a new story here. There's only one, and that's me. And you're not going to have all these idols either. And we might think in our day and age, there's, there's there's no way we would get mixed up with stuff like that. Well, let's just look at it this way. They had one idol, and this idol, you would feed him whatever you would feed him because, not because of what the thing was, but what it would give you. And this one would give you prosperity. And this one over here might give you fame. This one here might give you notoriety. All we've done is remove the idol and we still go after the things that they used to give. As a matter of fact, it even goes beyond that. We were, this, I, I actually taught on this for a while ago. And the next day, no, I'm sorry, two days later, maybe some of you saw this, in New York City, they turned the entire Eiffel Tower into the goddess Kali. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what did I say? The Eiffel Tower. Yes, the Eiffel Tower has been moved to New York City. That is another revelation for tonight. I'm going to deal with that this evening. I'm dealing with that tonight, so... Be amazed at what else is moving to America, to a city close to you, ladies and gentlemen. It's coming. It is coming. Yes, the Empire State Building. They turned the entire thing into the, the, to the goddess Kali. And I'm like, really? You know, and, the, and, I, and I'm, not try, I'm not trying to be too nitpicky here, but you know what? You really shouldn't have a Buddha sitting around your house. It's an idol. Well, it doesn't mean anything to me. That's the important thing. It doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, let's think about this again. It has nothing to do with what it means to you. Your dad. Let's let's, let's do it this way. I have a wife, a beautiful wife, a pasta-making wife, okay? Okay, sweetheart, I really want to hang up this picture. It's of me and my my old girlfriend, cuddling but it doesn't mean anything to me i mean the the colors are nice it was a beautiful mountain it means nothing to me but i would like to hang it in our in our house for everybody to see it how do we know this dog ain't going to hunt you know what i'm saying <laughs> this dog is not going to hunt she means nothing to me it was it was a long time ago i have no feelings for her whatsoever but you know i think she looks nice as a matter of fact that dress she has on if you got a dress like that that would probably look good on you too it doesn't mean anything to me, but you would look really nice. It means it doesn't matter what it means to me. What matters is what it means to her. That's right. Thank you, sister. <laughs> it's, it's it's just a little boot. It doesn't mean anything, or it's just a little a little picture of this of those Indian goddesses with a big spiral top thing on their head. It doesn't matter what it means to you, ladies and gentlemen. Because it's not about you. It's about your father. About his kingdom and his place in your life. I look at it, it doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't matter what it means to you. And so we have to begin to look at the word of God in a little bit different way. Like I said before, it's not like drawing a picture and drawing a circle and putting a picture of me in and saying it's all about me and everything is about me. No, it's all about God and how you can serve him and bless him and honor him and expand his kingdom. So it's all about him. So it doesn't matter what it means to me. That picture is never going to find its way hanging in my house. And if I tried it, it would be, I would say, what's that burning smell? And she's got outside burning. It would, it, would, it, would, it would not make it. 
very long. So he says this. Do not take his name in vain. You know, if I... That word vain, we typically mean this. When the, when, when the Bible says not to take the Lord, name of the Lord your God in vain, we typically believe something like this. What time is it? Is it? Okay. Right. Just a couple more minutes, okay? Uh, all right. You know, not to take the Lord your God in vain. We typically have an idea in our society that basically... Uh, you know, we have this idea there, there's good say good people say good words and bad people say bad words and we just don't say bad words and God's name in vain is a bad word and we don't say bad words. And we've, we've broken it down like that and because we've done that, we really kind of misunderstood the, the total essence of what it, this is talking about. And this again is about God and His kingdom. So I, when I grew up, I had, I was taught this pretty much, okay, good people don't say these words. Bad people say these words, good people say other words. And if, in fact, you as a good person make the mistake and say one of the words that are bad, there's a bar of soap waiting for you in grandma's laundry room. And I remember that one day I, as a good little boy, stepped over into this bad word box and I said, shut up. Shut up was not allowed and grandma promptly took me into the washroom and a bar of soap met with my tongue, and I never said shut up in the presence of my grandmother ever again. It worked. Sometimes we need the right words to describe right things. Uh, this one particular uh, guy, he had actually was a, um, a minister, and he actually committed to fornication with one of the women in his church, and a group of ministers were talking, and this one minister said that was a, that was a terrible indiscretion that he did. What? No. Uh, we need a bigger word a better word to describe that. But because we're so politically correct, we've mixed good words and bad words. We don't even know what's right anymore. If someone does something like that, the word indiscretion is is not really the word you should use. More like adulterer, whoremonger, that thing should come into mind. Because that's what it is. And that's what the Bible would call it. How about wickedness? How about evil? The Bible tells in the book of Isaiah, it says this, there's coming a time when men will call good evil and evil good, bitter sweet, sweet bitter, they will substitute light for darkness, darkness for light. Ladies and gentlemen, that day is upon us right now. But there are absolutes for us. There may not be absolutes for the world, but for us there are absolutes in a very simple, compact area called the Ten Commandments God gave them to each and every one of us. Taking God's name in vain basically means this. It has to do with how we carry his name. That doesn't actually mean to take. As far, I mean, the, word take the word take there in Hebrew actually means like to carry it on you. How you represent him. Not just about what you're saying out of your mouth. But how you carry him. You know, if we decided, you know, we, we have a coffee shop here. And we really want our coffee shop to be really, really, really good. So we're going to put the name Starbucks on the outside of our building. We could get more business in. It would be good for the church. The money all go to missions or to Scott Stewart Ministries. It would be a great... Uh, <laughs> It'd be, it'd be, it would be great. Good, good, good. That's what it would be. It would be great. How many know that it wouldn't be too long before we'd have to answer for something because we have violated copyright or, what, or we don't have a license agreement to use that? God gave us, his children, a license agreement to use his name. He said, this is my name. Use it this way, but you don't take it in vain. You don't represent it lightly. You don't represent it falsely. You don't go around and tell people, thus saith the Lord, and then it not happen. You represent me correctly. 
He gave us a license agreement about his name. We carry his name in that way. I wanted to bring this word to you this morning because I really felt that with the world in the condition it's in right now, one thing that we need to do as a body of Christ is to find ourselves back into allegiance to the words of Jesus. And I know that you're a well-taught congregation. I listen to Pastor Mike. I, I, I know that. But there might be some people who, who don't understand this. But also at the end of the day, God has given some moral imperatives that we as the body of Christ must follow after. And if we'll do that, we'll find ourselves in a safe place. But how do we practically walk this out? We keep our heart pliable to God in a place of always letting the sun melt the snow. Always allowing, keeping ourselves in a place of repentance and humility before God. Reading His Word and doing what His Word says lest we find ourselves in self-deception. But not only that, but at the end of time, God is going to be looking for something in this earth. And I don't have time to go through all this, but let me just go to one verse of Scripture. Go to Genesis, or Revelation chapter 12. This actually appears several times throughout the book of Revelation. There is a mark of the believer. The reason I'm saying this is because the law of God has been so put down and misunderstood. How many understand that there's a title of the Antichrist, and one of the titles the Antichrist it has is called the lawless one. Does that mean he breaks speed limits all the time? No. When the Bible talks about the law, it's talking about the law of God. He is the one who comes and says, I am an antinomian. I am against the law of God. Wow. Even John said the spirit of antichrist, the spirit of, a spirit of antinomianism, the spirit of anti-law is even in the earth, even to this day. Ladies and gentlemen, it was true when John said it. It's true right now. At the end of time, when, when things really begin to go haywire in the world. Obviously, now we're in the book of Revelation. As I said, this mentions it several times in the book of Revelation. You can look this up yourself. Revelation chapter 12, verse number 17. Look what it says here. There's a type of people that really get the devil upset. And look what he says. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Who are they? Those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Over and over. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. And here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Why is this a distinguishing mark? There could be different theological reasons for that, but I would say this to you. I believe God is returning us back to a place of very sound, very simple biblical exegesis where it basically is this, what God said God remains true to. He has not changed, not a shadow of turning in him, that what he said once he still means to this very day. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever in the person of Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. So what we want to do is we want to allow God to keep our heart pure. Realign ourselves. If I'm, if I'm feeding myself with something that says I shouldn't listen to the words of Jesus, I do not listen to that person anymore. I get myself back in the Gospels on what Jesus said. I let that affect my life. I believe what he says. I move in that. I allow God to use his word, his full total word in my life. Get back in the Ten Commandments. They're not that hard. You know, you probably keep, I mean, if you didn't murder anybody yesterday, you're doing pretty good. If you didn't commit adultery last night, you're not far off. However, Jesus did come and say this, didn't he? You look after a woman to lust after you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you speak this against your brother and you've already committed murder, Jesus took it, made it more difficult, internalized it, and gave us the Holy Spirit to be able to walk this thing out. God is good all the time, ladies and gentlemen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your plan, and for your purpose. 
We thank you, Lord, that we, your people, will walk out your word in faithfulness, Father. We walk out your word in faithfulness, Lord God, acknowledging, Lord, you as supreme in all that we do. Acknowledging you, Lord, as the head of every conversation, the, the glory of everything that we do. Understanding it's all about you, Lord, and everything, Father, in Jesus' name.